All right, welcome everybody. Thanks for coming back to the Culture Hacker Podcast. My name is Shane Green. I am your host today uh, and very excited because today we're going to talk about startups. Again, we're going to talk about the startup culture. We're going to talk about all those little challenges that makes it unique. And to do that, I wanted to get someone, what I would call one of the most seasoned entrepreneurs out there. So I managed to uh, take some of Randy Brandoff's time. Uh, I'm very excited to get Randy uh, today because this guy, uh, talk about some of the coolest brands that you've probably come across uh, started out in the whole marquee jet world uh, went over to NetJets, the whole fractional ownership where he was the chief marketing officer but apparently in his spare time he was able to bring out avion tequila you know that really uh, cool tequila that the hbo series entourage was all over i think every hotel room has that in there right now and now his latest venture which is 11 james which an annual membership club that gives you kind of access to some of the most exquisite and exclusive watches in the world. Randy, you haven't been uh, bored lately, have you? It seems like you've got some exciting stuff going on. How are you? I am wonderful. Thanks for having me, Shane. Yeah, uh, my friends have coined me a luxury drug dealer, and and (laughs) generally the business is good. Yeah, well, listen, again, as you get into that bling, I think so. Listen, you know, you've had some real success. I mean, these are some of the best startup sort of brands and stories that have come out. When did you realize you're this kind of serial or seasoned entrepreneur? And when did the startup bug really take hold? What's fascinating is that I didn't set out thinking. In college, I thought I was going to be Jerry Maguire and (laughs) I was going to go to law school. And at the last minute, I got talked out of it. I blinked. Instead, I went and did two years of management consulting at Deloitte. Um, I realized I was working as hard and, and learning a lot, but getting le- far less paid than my friends in finance, and this was the heart of the bubble. So I talked myself into a boutique venture capital firm in New York City, uh, and basically that my hiring was the leading indicator the bubble was going to burst, and it did. <laughs> Spent a year in VC, but it was year one of a four-plus-year correction. And I, after one year, was encouraged to seek other opportunities and fortuitously was introduced to four incredible entrepreneurs who had a handshake from Warren Buffett and NetJets to start Marquee Jet, and I became the first employee there. That's back in 2001. And from that experience, taking that PowerPoint into a thriving industry-altering business that at its peak was doing about a billion dollars of revenue, um, helping to launch Avion along the way, I realized once I was sitting as CMO of NetJets that I had a tremendous job and at an amazing multi-billion dollar company, but the dynamism and the innovation and the constant challenges and successes of entrepreneurship was flowing through my veins, and that's what motivated me to take the idea I had for 11 James and leave my cushy position and go for it. You are the true serial entrepreneur. I love it. All right. So let's get let's get some culture going here. You know what? You're in the startup environment. You're either employee one or, you know, as I said, now leading a startup. Talk about with so many priorities um, that comes into it, when do you have to start talking about culture or start focusing on it when there's just obviously some bigger priorities to get product to market, et cetera? When, do, when, when does that moment happen? You know, formalized structures around culture will have to begin later um, based on Maslow's hierarchy, but culture truly begins day one. Culture is set from the top. How you behave. You know, have you ever heard a leader saying, well, I'm not doing the right things now, but once we're bigger, I'll start doing the right things? That's, that's not right. Yep. How you behave sets the tone for the office day one. 
who you hire and how they work with each other sets the tone and is integral to the success of a startup at every single step of the way. And how one communicates within to within the office, up the up the chain, down the chain, across um, the basics of how hard everyone is working, how diligently setting deadlines, being prompt, you name it, those are all key components to culture, and they're very hard to change once you get into bad habits. Yeah, listen, I, I love this idea. So let's go to a couple of those pieces. Um, you know, if you look at your history in the startup environment, you've got into these uh, luxury type items, which may argue, hey, listen, they may have a little bit more risk to it. And you talk about the importance of that, the people that you hire. You were employee one, seems like that was a pretty good uh, hire at the time. But even now as a CEO, how do you ensure you get that right person? Is there anything that you look for in the startup environment that may take precedence as if you were uh, over, if you were a more sort of growing up and uh, typical traditional company? I have a few thoughts here. The first is it's hard. And especially soft skills and personality traits are harder, at least I'm no expert. They're harder, I think, to screen for in the interview process. You know, a lot of who someone really is comes out when you get to know each other uh, in, in a professional and personal setting and not just in a few interviews. Um, so I guess the first lesson is most people will make mistakes. And the key in an early stage business when you've hired someone who's a cultural problem is to correct for that mistake right away. Address it with that person. Try and give them a chance to adapt. And if that's not possible, make a move no matter how painful that is. I've certainly fallen prey, I've witnessed and fallen prey myself to doing the other. And you create, you know, there was an old saying around the, the champion Chicago Bulls of the Jordan rules, where you have someone who's valuable in a professional context, but requires you to set a different rules of conduct, and it's poison to your culture. Yeah. Um, but on the flip side, what I've also seen is you know, I remember an example at Marquee Jet reasonably early on, but when we were clearly ascendant and, and growing very quickly, we hired a number of salespeople right before a holiday season, and two of them were just very profoundly different. Uh, from, you know, in my mindset, I, you know, I wanted, you know, there was talking to, we were selling to C-level executives, and I thought someone with a high, you know, a great degree from a top institution and a little bit of formality and sheen to them was the right way to go. And we hired two executives in particular. One was, you know, from Texas, a former athlete, just didn't come across with that sheen at all, but was very much a, for lack of a better term, a, a guy's guy and very, 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 just the kind of guy you wanted to have a drink with when you met. And we hired another gentleman from upstate New York who also had a great personality, but no formality whatsoever. And I remember saying to myself, I don't like their chances. And across the next five to 10 years, they were always top five sales executives the company ever had. And I realized very quickly that you're predisposed to like or think that people like you are the best people. And you have to get that out of your head very quickly. So a diversity of experiences, of backgrounds, of personalities, one, makes for a better internal culture. And two, for different roles, is probably going to be much more appropriate than you realize. So that circling that back, when you are looking for that diversity, it's hard, it's hard to know when is this person diverse and interesting and additive versus where is the diversity actually problematic to the culture. 
And I think you learn that by experience and you're going to break a few eggs. Listen, I love you. You jump right into diversity. You know, think about it. You know, we, we talk about the Silicon Valley right now where diversity seems to be this hot topic. And, you know, as I said, there's this whole piece in the tech world about men versus women. And it's kind of crazy. And yet, you know, it's very important to say diversity is a critical part of culture. And culture doesn't mean that everything is vanilla and everybody's the same. In fact, what it does is it sets kind of the guardrails. But within that, you really are and should look for those outside-of-the-box uh, sort of talents. And, and, you know, Randy, over the years, if you had a bunch of Randy sitting in your room where everybody was just agreeing with you, or if uh, someone is in that situation, doesn't that impact or at least hurt their chances of ultimately becoming successful? It 100% does, and it also leads you straight down the line of groupthink and, and being yes and not hearing the, the honest or external or dissenting opinion that is often so essential, especially in early stage businesses where, you know, all decisions are, are more important when you're so close to the notion of gambler's ruin and running out of resources. You got to get more decisions right than wrong. And that means you have to discuss things from all angles. And if you're all the same and you're all looking at it the same, you're missing out. So, so let, let me ask, you know, you're, you're a successful business person, investor, entrepreneur. How do you keep that ego in check when you've got, when, when you kind of, in your gut, you might know that this is the right way to go, but you've got it, or you're getting advice from multiple people that kind of challenge you. One is, obviously, that's probably a good thing, but how do you as the CEO kind of take that on without, you know, without being offended or starting to get defensive and ultimately hurting where the brand could go? I mean, I will admit or cop to being guilty that I reflexively get defensive when challenged, but I've learned to immediately get off of that impulse um, and be open-minded. I think two examples, one movie quote guides me, uh, and I think it's really appropriate for entrepreneurship. It's from Bull Durham, and it's, you have to play this game with fear and arrogance. And I love it. There are times in a given day, week, month, year where you need to be doing one or the other, and generally a, a, a combination of both works well. Um, but I also think to a, a foundational example at Deloitte Consulting right out of college, where we were on this lengthy, near 30 consultant project at Prudential Healthcare, and this one consultant was at the heart of the team, at the heart of all the work we were doing, and truly the go-to person for everything. And his motto that he said all the time was, if anything was wrong or if he was late or anything, he would just be the person to be like, I suck. <laughs> and you would laugh, and it was just so self-effacing, and everyone knew he didn't remotely suck, but he was willing to say out loud, why is that late? I'm sorry, I suck. And it made me realize, get over yourself. And, it, you know, the work matters, the, the deadlines matter, the being a team matters, but any one person is only as good as your work and, and the product. You know, it's not about you, so get over yourself. You know, it goes back to the idea, you know, of what leadership looks like. I would argue that there is no one person that is, is this all-encompassing, hotshot, know-it-all person that can run a company. You have to rely on having a group of people around you that can provide not only the experience, the knowledge, the skills, but also that leadership, that ability to connect with that wider group of people and really get stuff done. And you see that when the company becomes about one person, Person, that then it's eventually it starts down this path that it's going to fail because no one person is that damn good. 
no matter how big their ego is. A hundred percent. And I've been, you know, I've been truly fortunate to work with folks like Ken Dichter and Ken Austin are unbelievable entrepreneurs and business executives and their personalities control the room. Any room they're in, you, you know they're there and, and, and they bring light to it. I mean, they really are, they, they, I mean, the charismatic doesn't do it justice. And, but yes, the culture will follow the lead of such big personalities, but they both know, and great, as great executives do, that it's one thing to set the tone, it's another thing to be the end-all, be-all in all the leadership. And they learned very early how to delegate, and all good leaders must. And, you know, the, it, it goes to one of the big challenges in an early-stage company of maintaining your culture is you're busy. As a, the CEO or on the leadership team, you're out raising money, meeting with clients, dealing with issues X, Y, Z, and you're not always there. And so your culture has to be strong when you're not in the room, and that's generally quite often. And it's having other people feeling empowered to, one, be leaders, and having everyone just understanding what's proper conduct within the team. That's the matter of survival and, or failure. This is, this is great stuff. So, you know what, Let, let's talk about, you know, culture, if it's this mindset sort of attitude that's created, there's often a lot of conversation about what the employee experience should look like, how to take care of it. You know, you can go all the way down from, you know, the kegerator parties, the ping pong tables, all the way up to, you know what, investing in the development of people. So in a startup, you don't have much money, if any money, to uh, invest into the employee experience. So where do you put your effort and money to make the people in a startup environment feel good, feel positive, feel fired up so you get their best every day? What, what, are, the, what are the things you have to do with them to make their mindset and attitude uh, 110% and right on? It starts, there is no one magic bullet and all environments are different. Uh, it starts with, I think first and foremost, giving constant feedback, both formal and informal. It starts with getting on a regular basis out of the work context and going for lunch, even if it's just downstairs into the corner, you know, to the coffee shop or you name it with small groups and large. It's picking a night and whether you're bringing in beers to the office or going to a, a, a place nearby, just buying, having a happy hour and buying a few rounds. Or if you don't even have the money to buy a few rounds, just Going where there's a special and, and, and just making, you know, or, or, you know, buying a bunch of cans of beer. It's, it's, not, it's not a matter. I've never heard that that happy hour was successful because we had, you know, because we drank really expensive alcohol versus a failure because we drank cans of Bud Light. Yeah. It's a matter of just in connecting with people on a human level and not just being so singularly focused on the business that you lose the interaction. But also, when I would tell you, I've been very fortunate, you know, at Marquee Jet, you know, Ken Dichter's whole view was about if you want the, your staff to treat your, to treat your customers, your clients like rock stars, and you know, it's private aviation, they really are, then you need to know what it is to feel like a rock star. And we made a point that every employee got to travel at least once, or at least experience being on a private jet. Now, Obviously, that was a situation where that was possible. In other instances, you don't often have very little to no budget. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you the most, the most imp one of the most impactful things that ever happened to me, like I remember flying privately at Marquee and NetJets, but I still to this day have a, have a note, a handwritten note that the co-founder Jesse Itzler wrote to me. 
and I haven't been able to throw it out because it meant so much to me at that moment. And every year for 11 James's holiday parties in the first four years, I showed up at the holiday party with a handwritten note for everyone on the team. And often we'd invite to the holiday party our PR team and others, and when I could, I'd have handwritten notes for them as well. Because in a world that's moving so quickly and has become so digitized, I think it makes a real difference when someone, someone stopped, took a second, and recognized you and took a second to write it down. And that, that some, my handwriting being so bad, I know my notes have had an impact on people, means that especially if you can write intelligibly, yeah. people, it, it makes a difference. So I, I think it's more recognition and connection than anything, and that doesn't take money. Yeah, listen, I I love that. I always come back. I always think it's just you know show respect. If you go to that Latin uh, sort of uh, again definition of respect, it's about I see you. And I often find that you know employees, regardless of whatever level they are, they just go, please see me, see me as a person, as a contributor, as someone that makes a difference. And whether it's through that handwritten note or taking them out for for a drink or a meal, I just think as long as you see the people around you, I think you're in good space. I think that's so important. 100% 100% agree. So let's kind of go. So, you know, you hit on something there that's kind of fascinating, informal versus formal. I, I, and I find that often in the startup environment, but honestly in any environment, this is one of the areas that people, uh, executives miss out on the most is the critical element is that people find formal feedback, you know, the performance appraisal, the recognition, all those formal elements. They often put those in place. They spend money around them. They spend a lot of time on them. But the reality is, is that they lack credibility. And the reason they lack credibility is because there's no informal feedback happening every day or every week. So whenever you get to the formal piece, there's that, oh my God, it's a surprise kind of moment. Talk a little bit about that because I think that informal piece we forget about. And yet that for me is the whole basis of how you develop people. It's not the formal sit downs where you tick boxes or you know hand out a, a plaque or that. It's what's happening every day. So in that startup environment, as you said, you're doing a lot of things. Uh, how do you find time or how do you remember to take time to give those casual conversations, whether it's giving someone a high five or correcting them and taking them in a different direction? It's funny because where I've aired in the past is being too late in instituting some of the formal quarterly, semi-annual, annual review processes and paperwork. Um, I've always kind of naturally done the informal. And I, I, I will tell you emphatically that one without the other doesn't work. You know, informal reviews, you know, I know a bunch of companies, I've seen examples where they do stack rankings. And there's nothing more impersonal than being told you did a great job, but two other people are valued more, and so you didn't get in the top of the stack. And it just, it makes what, what was useful feedback feel hollow. Yep. On the flip side, I've seen examples where you were telling someone, giving someone constant feedback, hey, have you thought about doing this differently, or I need you to do this, or please be more prompt, or please set proper expectations, and constant, constant, constant feedback. And then you get to a review, and your review is tepid, and you're pointing out all these things you've been telling that person for the previous few months, and they're like, oh, I had no idea this was a problem. And you're like, wait, what? I've been <laughs> telling you these five things. So you really need to have them both an imbalance or, or it, it's, a, it's a serious problem. I think 
I'm losing, I think, the thread of your question and trying to get my point out. What was the main thread of your question? Yeah, no, so, so again, you know, that balance that you just talked about, I think you were right there, is how do you find that balance or what is your advice about what that balance looks like between informal and formal? For me, the formal doing a once-a-year formal review is a waste of time because I think it's way too far apart. So what does that balance look like? I think you're dead on. It needs to be quarterly or semi-annually. Another challenge that I've seen is, you know, and you see it with wanting open floor plans. I mean, everything in the last 10 or 20 years has been around, even if you don't have a totally flat org chart, you have the company as to the extent it can feels flat and everyone's capable of approaching everyone else and have communication. And especially I've found when you're a 5, 10, you know, 15 person company early on, it's very hard to live by an org chart and to have structure because when you're creating teams of one person, max two people, it just seems silly to have too much hierarchy around that. But the issue is if you, even if functionally you need that cross team communication and everyone's engaged, you then feel like you're the only one who can provide formal feedback and that becomes a problem. Okay. So you need to, it's a perfect balance and no two situations are the same, but it's, it's one that needs to be paid attention to you know, maybe you have a free pass in the first six months out of the gate, but thereafter it has to be instituted or, or that's when, you know, pop problems will start appearing. Cool. So, you know, feedback, it's all part of communication. So let's talk about communication. You know, obviously that's critical. Everyone's running 100 miles an hour, probably in maybe different directions. So how do you ensure you keep communicating so that everybody knows what's going on? And while in a smaller group, initially that might be easier, but as you start to grow, how do you implement or institute communication elements and what you think the best ones might be to ensure that you keep everyone together and obviously focused on the goal line? There's been a lot written by folks smarter and more educated on the topic than I on the perfect frequency and you name it. So I won't tell you what's perfect. Um, but I will say weekly, max biweekly, there needs to be a whole team either meeting or call, depending on your structure. And it doesn't need to be long and it shouldn't be that detailed, but keep everyone on the pulse, especially when it's early and you have, you know, call it plus or minus or sub 20 people. Everyone, you know, should be made to feel a part of what's going on and know generally the major things that are happening. I think within teams and groups, it makes sense that there are weekly, if not biweekly, summary updates where it's not just coming from the top down, you have folks reporting, here's what I'm up to. Here's this week's or this time period's goals. Here's what we've achieved. Here's what we didn't achieve. And a little bit of a score, you know, as informal as you want of we did this well and this poorly and we need, we need to be better at this or provide more resources at this, et cetera. Um, I think all of that is just absolute integral, but one thing you lose sight of is the communication across the teams. So I think a lot of founders and CEOs, and I've been guilty of this, focus on what's going to you and what you're giving out. And you're ignoring the fact that while these two people might be sitting two chairs from each other, they're not communicating on what needs to be done. And so you need to figure out and challenge them to figure out how to better communicate and make sure that you're not the stopgap, you know, the, you're not the spoke in the wheel that's holding everything up if you're not around.
I love it. So, you know, you kind of touched on, it's about this idea of transparency. What's always interesting in the startup, you know, you kind of, everybody knows the score, knows how everybody's doing. Yet uh, in so many traditional companies, there's a lack of transparency today, which means, you know what, you go to employees, they don't know the company objectives. They, they, they don't know what the scores or key measurements are. They don't know how the company is doing. And I often go, how do you expect an employee to contribute if they don't know what you're trying to do and how you're doing? And I think this is one thing that in a startup environment you have to have, but yet it seems as companies get bigger and bigger that this really important element of transparency and engaging your people and how the company is doing gets lost. How do, you, how do you keep that transparency going and keeping people engaged in how you're doing? I think, I think one, it starts just with the word. I mean, this day and age with what's going on in, you know, in the popular world and in politics and you name it, I think it's becoming more obvious. Authenticity is more, is more obvious than ever. And obviously you could take the other side and people are having a harder time discerning real and fake. But I think people are thirsting, if not desperate, for the appearance of authenticity. And so I think it starts, you know, from leadership and across the team of saying, here's where we are. Here's where we did a good or bad job or where we need to do better. And, you know, what's authentic is recognizing one's shortcomings or frailties. And, and doing so in a public manner. But to be clear, that's doing so looking at oneself and speaking it publicly. Uh, you know, what, what, what is as bad for culture as anything I've ever seen is publicly denouncing someone on your team for their failures. You know, you have lost that person a lot of the time when you've done that, and you've lost others who now fear that you'll do the same to them. Cool. But standing up there as the leader and saying, hey, we – you know, it was our job to do X and Y this week, and we did X and we didn't do Y, and it's my fault, and here's why. I think it, it resonates and will get will be emulated and respected. So let's kind of go. I got to get to you while you're on here and talk about this topic of values. Um, you know, we've seen a lot more. You know, uh, companies as they're coming out and as investors start to start to look at you, they're interested in what your company values, which really defines how you act and interact and kind of guides decisions. We're seeing so many cases today where companies have found themselves in trouble uh, or they're you know they're, they're going into crisis mode and that their values is really just a piece of paper on the wall. It's a bunch of bullshit. It doesn't really mean anything. It's really not guiding their actions and activities. Can you talk a little bit about what you think the importance of these values are and making sure that there is these kind of guiding principles of how people should behave in your organization? Because it seems more and more today, it's going to be critical to get that right early on. It is. And, and I think you, you, know, you mentioned an interesting thing. I know a lot of companies have the poster on the wall right near the main entrance or reception or somewhere that's, here's our values and here's our culture. Um, and I think, I frankly think that is a good thing to have, but too often it stops there. Um, you know, one thing I was thinking of while you were speaking is, and this is like, a, I guess, a piece of advice for other would-be entrepreneurs or, or current entrepreneurs, is sometimes, often, the entrepreneur is an engineer or a finance executive or very incredibly smart in a given skill set, but culture isn't you know, leading a cult leadership experience may be lacking and culture definition and leadership may just not be there. 
And I think one of the biggest traits of a CEO and a cross or a founder across your entire business, you know that you need to put in the right resources, the right team, the right tools, the right systems, I think is also knowing when that you need to bring in someone to help you with that. And I think especially in this day and age where you've seen some incredibly high level issues that were culture driven and Uber being an obvious example, I think if much earlier on the hand was raised to all these incredibly successful, experienced investors, board members, other executives, and said, "Hey, I'm I'm not as strong as I can as I need to be here. Can you know we need help? How what's best to go and do better at this?" I think that pro- would have been what well, was a problem, well, became a problem, would have actually been a strength. And I think so. That's self-awareness and recognition and the self-confidence to raise your hand and say, "Hey." this isn't my forte, I need help, is incredibly important. So I love that idea. And you, you bring up the idea, and I use Uber as an example, but I, I'm going to talk, this is a, an issue I see across multiple companies. And, and I want to come back to the values for a second, is that I think Uber has like 14 values, which is you know basically saying to someone, I got 14 priorities. And you see companies with 10 values and 20 values, and it seems like they're just throwing up on themselves with every cool uh, tagline that they've, uh, that they've come across. If you're starting out and you're in a startup, how many of these guiding principles do you really need so you don't become so burdened and limited that, that there just seems like too much stuff? I mean, I've seen this a few ways. I think the answer, and, and it's hard, and I can tell you we went through some cycles of values at 11 games early on, and you know, when, when, if leadership you know, decides what they are and just gives them to the team, then they don't stick. But... I, I couldn't believe how long some of the meetings went with the team when they couldn't agree on particular words. So you got to find a balance and move and be open to evolving maybe a bullet or two. But I think generally five to seven feels like a sweet spot for me. Yep. When it's ten or more, it, when it's ten or more, it's like it's it's the priority list that you're just not getting to. Yeah. No. Listen, I totally agree, and I love this. A point that you made that I want to, you know, I reiterate to entrepreneurs or anyone out there with cultures that the values that you put in that stake in the ground, say it's five of them, you can add or shift those values in the future. You're not stuck with them. I think traditionally we looked at values, and yeah, I've, you know, I've had values, same values for 110 years. Uh, that's all very well and good, but are they still relevant today? So the idea that you are constantly checking to see if these this value system is the right guiding principles. I think that that critical point is you can evolve them. You can shift them. You can kind of, every year I tell companies, you know what, stop and check and go, are these the right values? And I think in a startup environment where your change as a business happens so much quicker, that that sort of exercise of going back to it, maybe annually, I think is so good. And it's just a great exercise as you bring more people on. The more that your staff feel that they were a part of coming up with the values or at least had some influence on it, the more they're going to own them. And that's great in those early environment days. Completely agree. So listen, we, we, we've gone through a lot of stuff and this is kind of awesome. So uh, you know what? The investors that are coming to you as you're an entrepreneur, you know, they're talking a lot more about value. Give, give us some final advice in that. You know, how do you talk uh, to investors or out there about values or how do you tell the story of your culture to maybe the world, but to an investor group? What sort of advice would you give uh, these startup executives? That's a great question. Um... 
I, I think it's challenging because often I think boards are looking for the obvious formal things you can give them and say, hey, we've defined and written down our culture and here it is. And, you know, that's a, if you're checking the box and assuming you did a good job, that's great. Um, it's a lot easier to communicate that at a board senior investor level than it is some of the softer examples. But to me, I'm, I think it's important to make a point that your board members show up and are a fly on the wall for company meetings or a happy hour, things of that nature. And obviously when they're front and center in the meeting, then maybe you having a, a false example of your culture because they're being catered to. But I think you know, your, cult, your true culture is how your company is living every day. And having them come and witness it, I think is gonna speak pretty loudly as to are you just saying at the board level, this is who we are? Or is it really manifesting itself in your company and, and in the, you know, what will be the success or failure of the business? Listen, so many cool ideas, not just for the startup environment, but honestly, across any company. Listen, our listeners, I, I'm sure really, really appreciate the insights. Randy, uh, as I said, good luck. As I said, obviously, 11 James right now is the, is the latest and greatest uh, entrepreneur version. Uh, so please go out, check out 11james.com. Check out uh, what this business model is all about, particularly if you love watches. Uh, obviously, I, I'm excited. Randy, you're going to have to come back when the next company. I kind of feel that you're, you're, you're going to keep growing more and more really, really cool brands. So thanks for doing such great work and obviously joining us on the podcast today. Shane, your what you do, your work is so incredibly important. Keep it up. If I can ever be helpful, please let me know, and I would love to come back in the future when I have more, you know, a more story to tell. Yeah, listen, we would love it. So thank you, everybody. Randy Brandoff, as I said, check him out. Catch up with him on LinkedIn. It's an awesome story, and as you heard, some absolutely fantastic uh, advice. Thanks very much for listening. Again, my name is Shane Green. Uh, remember, if you like what we're talking about, check out me at shanegreen.com. Remember, I've got that book out there. It's called Culture Hacker. Uh, again, it's that guide, and I'm going to tell you now, I wrote it with startups in mind, which means a lot of those little things that we talked about here today, how to do them easily, what to do when you don't always have that HR uh, resource and that available to you. So please check it out. If culture is something that you're kind of struggling with or thinking about, check it out. Culture Hacker is the book. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles. And of course, reach out to me, connect at shanegreen.com. I'd love to hear from you. If you want to be on the podcast, give me a call. Thanks everybody. Have an awesome day. Cheers.